For scripture reading, we turn to 1 John chapter 1. We begin it, why don't we begin at verse 1, John 1, verse 1, and read through chapter 2, verse 6. John 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 6. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning, and what we just read, as well as the rest of Scripture, 
are the basis for what's written in our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 15. There we read, What dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge that he, being innocent, and yet condemned by a temporal judge might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is, for thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me, for the death of the cross was accursed of God. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has obtained for you the favor of God. In all of the trials we go through, in all the difficulties that we face, in all the struggles that we experience, what a comfort it is for us to know that Christ has obtained for us the favor of God. And when we read that, that he obtained for us the favor of God, we know he did not obtain the favor of God for all human beings. And that it was not because of anything that we would do or that he foresaw that we would do, as some would say. It wasn't based on foreseen faith that God chose us. But it was unconditional. You and I, the rest of God's people, we were given to the Son. He laid down his life for us, and he obtained for us the favor of God. God's favor, his grace. He obtained for us righteousness. You and I are righteous in Christ. What a comfort we have, we who are sinners, 
to know that in Christ we are righteous, that our sins are forgiven. And though we struggle with our sins each day and each night, what a comfort it is to know they're washed away, removed, as far as the east is from the west. He has obtained for you and me life everlasting, life everlasting. Forever we will live with our God. This morning we consider what Christ went through. His sacrifice. His lifelong suffering. His suffering under Pontius Pilate. What does that, be, what does that mean? Why is... Why is that phrase in the Apostles' Creed? That it doesn't just simply say that he suffered, but that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What does that phrase mean? And we notice that in this Lord's Day, the suffering of Christ is divided into two Lord's Days. And it seems that purpose one, a purpose of that is to speak of his lifelong suffering so that we don't only think of what happened toward the end of his life but that we think of the suffering he went through all of his life he delivered us from the wrath to come and we look at this Lord's Day from the viewpoint of how Christ offered what's referred to as the only propitiatory sacrifice. He appeased the wrath of God. He reconciled us to God. We look at it, first of all, from the viewpoint of that lifelong suffering that's referred to in answer, in the first answer of the Lord's Day when it says that so by his passion, his passion is his suffering, and that word appears in places that you hear about the passion of Christ, and that's referring to his suffering, that so by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, we talk about his suffering, the only propitiatory sacrifice. Secondly, we look at it from the viewpoint that this Lord's Day, as well as the passage that we read, speaks about the saving of all mankind or of the world. That a moment ago we talked about how Christ obtained the favor of God not for all human beings, but for some. And yet there are passages that speak of him taking away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Of the world? Or John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
and 1 John 2, verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How are we to understand that? For whom did Christ die? And in the second point, we consider that. For whom he died, and what does it mean? That he saves the world. That he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Or, as the Lord's Day says, that he suffered the sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. What does that mean? And then lastly, we look at it from the viewpoint of the sure comfort that this Lord's Day is written from that point of view, even as the whole Heidelberg Catechism is, the comfort of knowing that Christ who has suffered in our place and died for us, that he has obtained for us God's favor. We consider this Lord's Day under the theme, the only propitiatory sacrifice. We consider, first of all, his lifelong suffering. Secondly, the vicarious atonement. Now, that word vicarious means that he suffered as the substitute. He suffered in our place. Well, in the place of whom? And so the second point has to do with for whom he died. And then thirdly, the sure comfort. The only propitiatory sacrifice. That term, propitiatory sacrifice... Propitiatory means to make propitious. Something that has the power to make propitious is propitiatory. So, of course, then that leads to the next question. If you look up the word propitiatory and it says having the power to make propitious, well, what does propitious mean? And that means to be favorable, to be favorably inclined toward. So then the idea is, exactly as this Lord's Day brings out, that a propitiatory sacrifice is one that would obtain for us the favor of God. That's the idea of a propitiatory sacrifice. And... This passage speaks of his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice. That by his passion, by his suffering, as the only propitiatory sacrifice. We also read of his obedience. And when we talk about his suffering, we talk about how he was obedient even while suffering. Romans 5 says, 
by Christ's obedience, we are made righteous. We were made sinners by an act of man. Man fell into sin. He sinned. And then man becomes a sinner. And in his generations brings forth sinners. By one's man act, by one man's act, many were made sinners. Well, we're also made righteous by an act, by obedience, by one man's obedience. Many are made righteous. And when did his obedience begin? Well, it's a, you're talking about his whole life. We see how that's related to how this Lord's Day speaks about his lifelong suffering. We can talk about his lifelong obedience. That he was obedient even while suffering. You know, someone might use as an excuse when they do something that they ought not while they were, they were suffering. And they were, because of the suffering they were experiencing, well, they said something that they shouldn't have said or did something that they shouldn't have done. Christ was obedient even while suffering. Suffering his whole life. Even unto death. He was obedient even unto death laying down his life. He suffered pain, fatigue, hunger and thirst. He also was rejected of men. He was despised, and we sang of that. Him who was perfectly righteous, the sinless mediator, was despised. He who spoke the truth was contradicted. They spoke against him. They spoke against the things that he taught repeatedly. There were those that listened to him trying to find fault with him. And he even had one of his own disciples following him around that would later betray him. He was tempted by the devil. And he humbled himself to the deepest pains of hell. He humbled himself to the deepest pains of hell. He poured out his precious blood. The shedding of blood was required. And his blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven. He sustained God's wrath. Now, the Father always loved the Son personally. 
It is important to remember that when we talk about him sustaining the wrath of God, that the father was very pleased with his son. He said so. He was pleased with his son. He loved his son. Christ sustained the wrath of God because of our sin. He bore our guilt. And he suffered the punishment that we deserved. He is our head. And as our head, he bore our guilt and suffered the punishment that you and I deserved. And he felt it. It's a phrase in the Belgian Confession, Article 21, that brings out that he felt the terrible punishment. That phrase serves to bring out that we shouldn't just say, well, yeah, we know he, he died for us. He suffered and died for us without really contemplating what he went through, what he felt. He felt the temple terrible punishment that your and my sins merited. Our sins merited punishment. So the question, you know, what do we merit? We merit, we've merited punishment. And Jesus felt that punishment. He sustained God's wrath in body and soul. Now we must not confuse the phrase body and soul within his divine and human natures. When you talk about his body and his soul, you're talking about his human nature. He sustained in his human nature the wrath of God. By the power of his Godhead, he was able to sustain the wrath of God in his human nature by the power of his Godhead. But when we talk about him sustaining God's wrath, we're talking about in his human nature, body and soul, body and soul. The weight of our sin and the wrath of God pressed out of him that bloody sweat in the garden. Lifelong suffering. And as was mentioned, the Heidelberg Catechism has a question just on that before it talks about suffering under Pontius Pilate. It seems that the reason for two questions on his suffering is because it's explaining the phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate, but didn't want to just talk about the significance of under Pontius Pilate. It separated the word suffering to bring out that his suffering was lifelong. But now, what does the phrase under Pontius Pilate mean? Why, why was that added? 
Why was that written already in the Apostles' Creed years ago? We didn't even know the exact date of the writing of the Apostles' Creed. It goes way back. And why was that phrase? Why didn't it just say, you know, refer to his lifelong suffering, but why did it say he suffered under Pontius Pilate? We can say it was God's plan, of course. We know it was God's plan that he would suffer under Pontius Pilate. And that Pilate would deliver him over to be crucified. And that crucifixion was the accursed death. So that's related to question 39, which speaks of why he died by crucifixion that that's the accursed death. And in God's plan, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that Pilate would deliver him over to be crucified, and he'd die that kind of a death. Which meant then that not only the apostate church would be involved in wanting him to be crucified, but also the world power would be represented. Pontius Pilate, as a representative of the world power, would deliver him over to be crucified. And so both were involved. Yet this Lord's Day brings out that a specific point with regard to his suffering under Pontius Pilate that needs to be seen is that it was God's plan that Pilate would deliver over to death one whom he had declared to be innocent. That's what's stressed. We see that in the answer. That he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, he was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted. And that's the language of our Lord's Supper form. He was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted. To acquit is to set free to release from accusation and guilt. He was innocently condemned that we might be acquitted. And Pontius Pilate himself declared, I find no fault with him, and that was God's plan, that this temporal judge, this worldly judge, would publicly declare, what evil has he done? I find no fault with him. Interestingly, it was also declared by the, the one thief that was converted on the cross when he spoke to that other thief and said, this man, referring to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. He was innocently condemned. He was innocent. 
he bore our guilt. He suffered in our place. And now we move to the second point of the vicarious atonement. And I use that phrase also to teach the meaning of those two words. We already talked about the meaning of propitiatory. What does the word atonement mean? One easy way to remember that is to atone, that word is made up of two words, at and one. And that is the idea that they are at that one who atones reconciles someone to God so that they are now at one together. That's the idea. That one who atones satisfies for sin and reconciles someone to God so that they are at one, they are together. He did enough. That's the idea of satisfying, that he did enough. He reconciled us to God. For whom? You know, sometimes we talk about limited atonement. Whom did he suffer for? Whom did he die for? Whom did he reconcile to God? We speak of a vicarious atonement. A vicarious, that term means to be a substitute and to suffer in the place of someone. So that's a term that's often seen and that the Reformed have stressed that he it was a vicarious atonement. He suffered in the place of certain people. Many people say he suffered in the place of he died for all human beings. And we say, well, if, if it this was a vicarious atonement, so if he suffered in the place of all human beings, then all human beings would be saved. That's what it would mean. Which scripture makes clear is, is not true. So who, for whom did he die? Well, he died in our behalf. Who's our? Christ's sheep. He was bruised for our iniquities, the iniquities of his sheep, his people. In Isaiah 53, we read of him dying for his people. For the transgressions of God's people, he was stricken. He was bruised for our iniquities, our being God's people. John 10 says he laid down his life for his sheep. That's an easy one to remember. 
And he makes clear in that very chapter that not everybody is his, are his sheep. Ephesians 5, you know, we read Ephesians 5, the end of Ephesians 5 on marriage. That very chapter speaks about particular atonement or limited atonement, vicarious atonement. He died for his bride. He gave himself for her. For his bride. So that there are two groups of people. He died for those that have been given to him and he separates us from this world. And we are his people. We belong to Christ. And we say that's our only comfort. That we're not our own. And that we belong to our Savior. And we can prove that. And it's pretty easy to prove that he died for his people. Isaiah 53, John 10, Ephesians 5, those passages that were just mentioned. It's pretty easy to show from those passages that he died for his people. But then some might say, well, what about John 3.16? What about 1 John 2, verse 2? He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. How, how are you going to explain that? And sometimes we say, well, from the other passages of Scripture, we know that that's referring to all the elect, which of course is true. It certainly is the case that the other passages of Scripture make clear that that's referring to the elect. Because otherwise you would have a disagreement in other passages with what we read of here. So that is certainly a proof. Another proof with regard to John 3.16 is that we would say the world doesn't mean all human beings. We can clearly see that. Scripture speaks of him, of God hating the workers of iniquity. Sometimes people will say, oh, he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And then we say, well, you look at Psalm 5.5 5 and Psalm 11.5 and see if it says he hates the sin or if, he, if it says he hates the sinner. It says he hates the sinner. And those verses go with, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So it's easy to show that he doesn't love all human beings. Also, Jesus spoke about not praying for the world. He prayed for just some people. In John 17, verse 9, he says he prays for them, referring to his elect people. 
I pray not for the world. So obviously the world in John 3, verse 16, does not mean all human beings there. Also, there are passages that speak of Christ saving the world. We already referred to one of them. When John the Baptist spoke of Jesus taking away the sins of the world. And Christ spoke of himself as the bread of life who gives life to the world. John 6, verse 33. We'll read that one. That one. John 6, verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He gives life. He doesn't offer life. He gives life unto the world. He takes away the sins of the world. He gives life unto the world. He saves the world. So the world is sometimes, that term is sometimes used with regard to those for whom Christ does not pray. And there's times where it's used in the negative sense, you know, that Christ doesn't pray for them and we're not to love the world. We often speak of the church and the world. But it's also, the term is also used in a sense where Jesus is said to be the savior of, of the world. God loves the world. He take, Jesus takes away the sin of the world. He gives life unto the world. The world is refers to the created orderly universe with God's people. When we talk about the world used in this positive sense, it refers to God's elect people with Christ as the head, and then it includes the creation. First of all, it includes, it refers to Christ and the, what we call the new human race with Christ as the head. When our Heidelberg Catechism says, for the sins of all mankind, for the sins of all mankind, how are we to understand all mankind? Christ is the head of the new human race. And the new human race is saved. And all those who are engrafted into Christ are part of that new human race with Christ as the head. And Christ is the head over all things in heaven and earth. And Christ delivers the creation itself The creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And so 
that the, the deliverance that Scripture speaks of is a deliverance also for the Creator. But when it speaks specifically now about the forgiveness of sins, God's elect people, those chosen to be in Christ, are part of the new human race. And that new human race consists of individuals that are gathered from all nations. And that idea of the world, one of the purposes of that term was to bring out that the gospel was going to save a people from all the nations. All the different nations. The gospel going to the world means the gospel going to the nations. And that all nations will be joined together in Jesus Christ. And that refers to the elect nations. The elect in the elect remnant in each nation. It refers to them. And when God saves them, He is Christ is saving the world. And that that is quite a, a comfort too for us to contemplate. That Christ is the head of the new humanity. And that there's going to be a new creation. And that we will reign on the earth. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. What a joy. And what a calling we have, too, when we hear that this word needs to be brought to the nations. For when it says, and not, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, it brings out that the gospel of the kingdom needs to go forth to all the world as a witness unto all nations. And Matthew 24, verse 14, uses that language. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. In all the world. As a witness unto all nations. So parallel with all the world was all nations. The elect from all nations. God will gather his people. And we are members of a body that consists of, of people from all these different nations. And it's important for us to be actively involved in the work of missions. And for there to be more men as God opens up the door that go forth to other lands to bring the word. The gospel concerning Jesus Christ who offered the only propitiatory sacrifice who gives life 
to the world. And then lastly, the comfort that we have. This Lord's Day is written from the viewpoint of the comfort that we have. In fact, it mentions the comfort that we have in our greatest temptations. It says, is there anything more is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. Because of our sins, we deserved the curse. The curse lay upon us. And the fact that he suffered the accursed death, it says we are assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon us. That phrase in our Greatest Temptations is actually in the next Lord's Day when it speaks of the related phrase, he descended into hell. Then it says that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this. And then it makes reference to the pains, tears, and hellish agonies in which Christ was plunged and how he hath delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. And we see how that's related. Delivering us from the anguish and torments of hell with the fact that he took on him the curse that lay upon us. And what a comfort that is. For you and I deserve to be cursed. We have to take that in. We have to receive that. That that's true. When we examine ourselves, we're supposed to consider the curse we deserve. What did you what have you merited? What have I merited? The curse of God lay upon us. What do most people Where do they go when they die? By far the majority of human beings. Christ has suffered in our place. 
He felt the punishment that we deserved. And in the difficulties that we face, in the trials that we go through, we know we're not satisfying for our sins. Sometimes we go through difficulties that may be related to a sin. Sometimes we can't make a clear connection. There's many things that we suffer. We can't make a clear connection between what we're going through and a specific sin. But there's other things that we can. But even when that's the case, we know we're not satisfying for our sins. We're not atoning. Christ has satisfied in our place. We know that our Father chastens us in love. And we know we have his favor. And we return to that subject where we started. We have the favor of God. We are recipients of God's grace. And the fact that he obtained for us the favor of God, this is a clear proof of particular grace. Grace is favor. God's favor. He obtained for us the favor of God for whom? the ones for whom he died. Well, then grace is particular. He obtained for them, for us, the favor of God. And to know in whatever we go through that we have the favor of God. That God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. He's obtained for us his favor. That we're righteous. That though our conscience accuses us that we've transgressed all the commandments, we're righteous in Christ. And the Spirit has worked in us that we have the beginning of new obedience. And the work with which God has begun, he will complete. We know he will complete it. And our life that we have is never-ending everlasting life with God. What a comfort we have. We confess, we believe that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. We believe in the Son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day he rose. We believe in him. We embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and are conscious of the fact that our sins are forgiven. And hearing this, believing this, our desire is that we live unto him. My little children, the passage says, 1 John 2, verse 2, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. That he speaks to us about Christ, our high priest, the one who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who intercedes for us. And he says, These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Hearing about Christ's suffering, hearing about his perfect sacrifice, hearing that we, that those who confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Our desire is not that we go forth and sin, but that we fight against our sin, that we live unto him. And we're thankful that when we do sin, which we do, that we know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who offered the only propitiatory sacrifice in our place. May we be comforted by the gospel of Christ, and may we in our life show our gratitude, our thankfulness to our covenant-keeping and faithful God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that Thou hast sent Thy Son, Thine only begotten Son, who laid down His life for us. So thankful for the life everlasting we have in Him, the comfort that we have in Christ. Grant us grace, O God, to live unto Thee. May we on this day, on this day of rest, glorify thee in our worship, now also as in our homes. And may we be gathered together for a second time according to thy will to glorify and praise thee. May thy word, O Lord, be to thy glory, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.